So have you ever tried to be friends with somebody, but it didn't quite work out? <laughs> like they didn't want to be your friend. They wanted to have nothing to do with you. Well, maybe before you tried to make that friendship, you should have picked you up a copy of How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Maybe that could have helped you a little bit. This now famous book was first published in 1936. It's a book full of advice and tips on how you can deal with interpersonal relationships, how you can deal with human relationships, and some advice for how to do that well. One of the things that Carnegie includes in his book, which I love, is a very, very simple tip, and it's simply to smile. Smile. Now, not everybody is into smiling. Some people don't have a mood that leads to smiling. Some people are kind of like the sign that's out on the side of the road. It looks like one of those church signs, and the sign read the following. It said, you know what? When life gives you lemons, squeeze them in someone's eyes. Now, some people don't smile. They squeeze the lemon in people's eyes. Now, I tend to be a kind of a smiley guy, and I kind of make the lemonade out of lemons, but I don't smile all the time. I'm usually not smiling when I'm working on my taxes in the spring. That's not exciting, something that, you know, cranks my tractor. I'm not always smiling. Definitely when I walk into the restaurant and the really, really, really nice lady from behind the counter says, I'm sorry, sir, but we are out of bacon. All right, that picture is actually my picture that I took um, in near Dade City, Florida, and I walked into this place to get a Cuban sandwich, and that was the first sign I saw. Sorry, we're out of bacon. I almost cried, but I didn't. I kept it together. This principle that Carnegie lays out, though, is kind of good. It's simply this, that there is something powerful about a smile. There's an impact that a smile makes. Flexing your muscles up instead of down has an influence on the people around you. Sometimes I think we forget about how powerful a smile really is. Carnegie has a lot of advice in his book. Smiling is not the only thing. And it's not just geared toward business or education or government. He even includes some things for the home. And so since this is Father's Day, I want to throw a few of those out. And maybe, dads, we need to catch one of these and and tattoo it on our brain and and put it into practice this week. This is some of the things he said about home life. Don't nag. Don't criticize. And be courteous. Don't nag. Don't criticize. And be courteous. Now, of course, those don't apply when your kids are between the ages of 13 and 19. Then you can do whatever you want to. Don't worry about it. It's fine. You've got a, got a free pass. No, actually, dads and even granddads, those are the ages that we need to strategically smile more. Those are the ages that we really do need to criticize less. We need to cheer more. And we need to make a really big deal out of the gospel, a really big deal out of Jesus during those years. And speaking of Jesus, how was Jesus at winning friends and influencing people? How did he do at that? I mean, Jesus said he was the way and the truth and the life. So, I mean, you have to think that he's got some pretty good people skills, right? I mean, you have to think that he was doing Carnegie before Carnegie, right? Well, we're going to take a peek for just a few moments into just one of Jesus' many people skill classes that he taught. And we're going to look today at Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 29. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. 
So here's Jesus. He's got a crowd of people. The crowd is building. More people are around. And this is his chance. This is his shot. He's going to have an opportunity to to win these people toward the kingdom of God. He's going to have an opportunity to influence them with the gospel. He's going to have a, a chance to get them to join the church. I think he missed his opportunity, maybe. Because, see, Jesus didn't look out on the crowd like, like Pinocchio in the Geico commercial, you know, and see a lot of potential, which technically Pinocchio in that commercial didn't see a lot of potential either. Jesus looked out on the crowd, and he said, you know, I, I look around this room, and what I see is a lot of wickedness. <laughs> At this point, somebody might say, bless his heart, you know. Oh, Mary, Mary didn't get Jesus to those classes at the synagogue that taught you how to be subtle and, and how to be nice. Jesus is missing the point. He has a crowd. He has a chance. He has an opportunity. And he looks at them and he says, when I look around, I just see a lot of wickedness. Now, he's not trying to, to create shock value here. It's not for shock effect. He has a reason for saying what he's saying. He's going to clarify what he means by this wickedness. Look at the next part of verse 29. This generation is wicked because it seeks for a sign. Imagine a husband or a wife, and they make a decision to do something kind for their spouse for 40 days in a row. 40 days in a row, they're going to do one thing special for their spouse. They're going to have a a kind gesture or or maybe a little honeydew list that was unexpected. Maybe a fun day trip. Maybe a special meal, maybe a a unique gift. And and for 40 days, they're going to show that other spouse a a lot of appreciation and a lot of love. Now, imagine it's day 41. Supper's over, and the spouse that's been getting all of the attention, the spouse that's been giving the kindness, getting the kindness and the gifts, they say, well, hey, you know, the day's almost over. Where's my gift? Where's my special thing? I mean, hey, sweetie, you're the one saying we need to work harder on our marriage. Hey, I mean, you tell me you love me, but you know, I'm just just not seeing it. See, day 41 was a new day, and the other 40 days were just totally ignored. That's kind of like what Jesus is in the middle of. You see, Jesus has been performing stunning miracles, things that can't be explained. He's been teaching in such a way that the people are amazed They don't really know how to respond. But what they respond with is, you know what, that's great, that's neat. But, you know, Jesus, I think I'm going to need a little more if I'm really going to believe in you. I think I'm going to have to see a little more if I'm going to follow after you. See, these folks had heard the news that, that God was going to send someone to rescue the people. So they were looking for the rescuer. But what they were doing was they were looking for that charming, up-and-coming politician who could bring hope and progress. They were looking for that charismatic leader that could come in and make things great again. They were looking for that coach that they could hire and get them back to the glory days where they could get back in the title game. And they were so focused in that way that they missed Jesus. The Son of God was standing right in front of them. The Prince of Peace was was talking with them. The Savior of the world was was walking around with them. The King of Kings was, was breaking bread with them, but they didn't see Him. 
in some ways I think we forget that we can do the exact same thing. And why did they do that? Well, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah gave us a pretty good description. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 1 says, Who has believed our message? In other words, Isaiah is saying, you know, I've been, I've been speaking God's truth. I've been proclaiming God's truth. People aren't buying it. They, they aren't listening to it. Some people listen to Isaiah. They listen to his prophecies about the baby that was going to be born. They listened to his prophecies about Jesus, and they believed, but most people did not. Jesus, same thing. See, Jesus was proclaiming God's truth. He was performing amazing miracles, but people were looking at him, and they were like, okay, maybe. Some believed, but... Most did not. And why did they not believe? They couldn't see. They they couldn't hear. It's kind of like if you're doing a search on the internet for something and you you put in a couple of filters because you're looking for this and it's in this price and, and so everything comes back and you've got your filters in there but Jesus wasn't in their search results. Because see, they they were looking for other things and they missed what they actually needed the most. There's an old hymn that goes like this. Open my eyes that I may see glimpses of truth. Open my ears that I may hear voices of truth. Another song that we sing every now and then. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. See, both of those songs remind us of the same thing. Only God can help us see his truth. See, these folks, they didn't want to spend their time and their money on Jesus because they really weren't sure that he was what they wanted. They couldn't see. They couldn't hear. A lost person cannot see and hear the gospel. They're they're dead in their sins. They're like spiritual zombies. They, They can't make any connection with the beauty of the gospel. And lost people don't realize they're lost. They don't realize they're dead. They don't realize that they're blind and deaf. They they have no clue because they're so detached. And that's why we as Christians follow the example of Jesus. And we follow the example of millions of Christians over the last 2,000 years. We pray. We pray that God would open eyes and open ears so that they could see and hear the gospel. When we send a group of people from our church to Guatemala, we're praying that God would open eyes and ears to see and hear the gospel. But it's not just lost people that need to see and hear the gospel. Even Christians need to see and hear the gospel. You see, we forget that sometimes we are really, really, really distracted with lots of things in life. There's a lot of sin in our life, and we can't always see and can't always hear. You know, that's true on Sunday mornings too, right? Sometimes the kids are already fighting before they get in the car to go to church. Sometimes mom and dad fight the whole way on the way to church. You know, sometimes we we get in the pew, and man, we were so worn out from Saturday night because we were out late. Sometimes we're a little nervous because we're hoping our tithe check clears, you know, when it goes in the bank the next day. Sometimes we're a little miffed because somebody's sitting in our normal seat. Sometimes we're, we're stewing because our team lost the day before. Sometimes we're a little puffed up because we really do think that our sin doesn't stink to highest heaven. Sometimes we're agitated about the music. Sometimes we're just sitting here and the reality is we're thinking, you know, the one thing I don't like about the church is the customer is not always right. So we have this picture of the gospel It's always in front of us, but we as Christians actually can't see it. We're we're sitting in church, and and we can't catch a glimpse of Jesus, not in the songs, not in the prayers. 
not in the preaching, not in anything, because we're distracted or we have sin that just is throwing us off. So here's what we do. We have to beg and plead that God would help us to see and to hear. I think I've shared the story with y'all before of the, of the Baptist church that had a, a Korean church that met in it after. And so the, the Baptist folks had their service, and then following the service, the Korean church would meet in the same room, a little partnership there. And the one thing that this person wrote about the Korean church was as soon as the Baptists were leaving from their service, the Korean folks were, were standing at the door. They couldn't wait to get in. But their service wasn't for another 30 minutes. But what they did was almost the entire congregation sometimes would be there 30 minutes early to come sit in the pew and do nothing but pray. They knew they needed their ears and their eyes open. They knew how many distractions were in their life. They knew how hard it was to listen to the gospel, even if you love the gospel. What we need to do is pray that often the words of Isaiah would apply to our lives. Isaiah 32, verse 3. Then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded, and the ears of those who hear will listen. See, the people standing in front of Jesus, they, they couldn't see, they couldn't hear. I mean, they, they knew what was going on. I mean, they looked at Jesus and said, that was, and that was cool, and that was neat. We like that, but if we're going to follow you, if we're really, really going to believe your message, I think we're going to need to see more. Here's how that might sound in today's language. You know, I like the things I hear about Jesus, but if Jesus expects me to, to change, I, I don't know if I can really follow after him. I, mean, I can't follow after him if he expects me to change my beliefs. I can't follow after him if he expects me to, to change the way I handle my finances. I, I can't follow after him if he doesn't accept my life and my lifestyle and what I do every single day of the week. And if Jesus is going to expect me to change, then I don't think I'm going to be able to do it because, you know, I'm kind of set in my ways and I kind of have my way of doing things. If that's how your heart thinks most of the time, you're probably not a Christian. Because the very nature of the gospel is defined by change. Not change for the sake of change, but change because of love for Jesus. And the only way that changes is when we surrender and submit to him. See, here is, here's the sign. The sign has a, a lot of different images. Jesus of Nazareth was born of a virgin. He proclaimed the truth about God. Jesus was brutally executed on a cross outside of Jerusalem. His death satisfied the penalty of my sin and the penalty of your sin and the penalty of everybody's sin. Jesus died. His dead body was put in a tomb that was owned by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Three days after his body was put there, his body came back to life. By the power of God, he rose from the grave. And Jesus, in his risen body, was around hundreds of people for weeks. They saw him. And Jesus levitated completely and totally up to heaven. And there were witnesses that watched him do this. And those witnesses were not insane, hyper-religious people. And Jesus said he's coming back again. And Jesus said if you will truly believe in him, everyone who does can be saved. If you demand more than that, you will probably never be a Christian. 
See, these people were looking at the Savior. And they said, you're not enough. And so I I plead with you today, don't demand more. Let the, the picture of Jesus be enough. There is love for you in Christ you will never find in a spouse. And you'll never find in a kid. You'll never find in a grandkid. You'll never find in your favorite celebrity, your favorite athlete, or anyone else. And you definitely won't find it in the mirror. There is a love from Jesus that goes beyond explanation. There is a love from Jesus that will leave you at the stoplight in the middle of rush hour traffic in tears because you're thinking that he has saved you and redeemed you and paid the penalty of your sin. Don't demand more than the love of Jesus as a sign. It's enough. But it wasn't enough for these folks. And so they said, we need a little more. And so how does Jesus respond to them? Look in verse 29. This generation seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah. Jonah? (laughs) What in the world is Jesus talking about? Why in the world would he just suddenly bring up Jonah in the middle of this conversation? What does his big whale of a tail have to do with any of this? Well, first of all, the, the whale of a tail is not a tail. There's nothing phony about Jonah and his story. It's written as a historical account. It's really not written with vague mythology. You see, Jonah was a a real person. He really lived in a specific time. He really had a, a specific ministry on dates that we can number. He really did try to run away from God to this real place. He really did try to avoid another real place. And and he caught an interesting ride that eventually got him to the place where he was supposed to be. He was trying to run away and go to a place that today is in the modern area around Gibraltar, just south of Spain. And he was avoiding a place called Nineveh, which is in western Iraq. So these are real places, real moments, real times. So historically, it makes no sense to say that this story about Jonah is just some cute fable. And then we have Jesus comparing himself to Jonah. So Jesus is trying to establish his authority. It sure would be strange for Jesus to try to establish his authority by referencing an old fairy tale, by referencing some fable. He's in the middle of a conversation about the kind of wickedness that causes people to hate God and hate people, that causes people to curse God and curse people, that causes people to raise their fist at God and causes people to use their fist to hit others and even murder others. This is wickedness Jesus is speaking of. And I can't imagine in the middle of that conversation, he would throw in a fairy tale. It's not consistent. So historically, there's a lot of proof that Jonah's a real story. But here's the thing. I cannot make you believe that Jonah was swallowed up by a big fish and it was in there three days and got spit out in the right place. I can't make you believe that. But I can say that historically there's a lot of evidence. And then there's Jesus. And Jesus doesn't call Jonah a fable. And Jesus has earned my respect as a resource and a reference. So I'm going to stick with Jesus. So the people are asking for a sign, and Jesus says, you know what, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. What in the world does that mean? Well, he tells us. Look at verse 30. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. So what kind of sign was Jonah? Well, we have kind of a compare and contrast that Jesus is making here. So when the fish finally got Jonah to where he was supposed to be, 
Jonah went, and this is what he said to the Ninevites. Jonah verse three, chapter 3, verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. I mean, he didn't have anything else to say. I know some of you are thinking, man, I wish my preacher's sermons were only one sentence. Man, that sounds fantastic. Jonah has one sentence to say, but think of how over the top this sounds. Jonah goes to a people that he doesn't know, and he says, your city is going to be destroyed in about 40 days, and probably all you people are going to die. And how do they respond? Look at verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. I want you to imagine the most wicked place on earth in your mind. Just, just that area of the world right now that you say, man, that area of the world is just wicked, full of wicked people. That's Nineveh. These are wicked people. Jonah was not going on a vacation. So some guy they don't even know who reeks of fish guts walks up into their town and says, you guys need to repent and follow God. And they did it. Why did they do that? Because God opened the eyes of their heart so that they could see. Maybe God was responding to someone's prayer. Maybe there was somebody who had been praying for Nineveh to turn to God. Maybe it was somebody from Jonah's hometown. His hometown was, I mean, this is just a name that I can't walk by without saying. Gath Heifer. <laughs> Where are you from, Gath Heifer? So Jonah's from Gath Heifer. Maybe somebody from Gath Heifer, maybe First Baptist Church, Gath Heifer, found out that Jonah was going on this trip to Nineveh, and they knew how evil the Ninevites were, and they began to pray. And God responded to their prayers by allowing the Ninevites to hear the gospel and to follow after him. Don't ever underestimate when I tell you to pray for those who are going, whether they're going to Scotland or Guatemala or wherever they're going on these trips, your prayers matter. We are praying for people to find Jesus. So what was the message that Jesus gave? This is what Jesus said. Matthew 4, verse 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Basically the same message that Jonah gave. Again, one sentence. I know I'm not doing myself any favors. Two great sermons and they were only one sentence long. I know. I need to work on that for next week, right? So this one message is similar, a little bit different, some different words. But how did the people respond to Jesus? Well, some people believed Jesus and they followed him. And then John writes this, John chapter 12. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. So the message was about the same, but Jonah got better results than Jesus. Don't miss that picture. All the people from the least of them to the most of them responded to Jonah's sermon. But not so with Jesus. But see, there's a big difference. Jonah went grudgingly. Jesus went to the cross for me and for you, lovingly. Jesus didn't go with any hesitation. Jonah had to have his arm twisted in the belly of a whale for three days before he would go do what God wanted him to do. But Jesus, with joy, with purpose, with authority, with love, went to the cross for my sin and for your sin. And three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, completely and totally and perfectly conquering death and erasing the sting 
of death. What does that mean, to erase the sting of death? Here's what it means. Because God saved me when I was about 11 years old, what that means is that the sting of death will never touch me. It means that when I breathe my last, I will not breathe my last. Because I'm a nice guy? No. Because Jesus is good, and Jesus is pure, and Jesus is holy. I won't feel the sting of death because Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. The Jesus of Nazareth that we read about, this one particular person, he gave his life for me. And I'm believing in him, and I'm trusting in him, and I'm relying on him, and I am clinging to him as my only source and hope for salvation. And I have every reason to do that. Because the Bible and even non-biblical accounts say that Jesus bled and died and rose again. And he did all of that to rescue me from my sin. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means you put everything you have into Jesus. Jesus Christ is not a fairy tale. Jesus Christ is not a cute fable. But he is this. He is the only sign you need. The only one. Jesus didn't stop with Jonah. Look in verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So about 3,000 years ago, a queen from Africa, the queen of Sheba, she heard some stories about the wisdom of Solomon. And she was so impressed with those stories that she traveled about 3,000 miles to go find him. Maybe on camel, a little on foot, maybe a little bit on a boat. It took her probably two or three months to get from where she was to where he was. But she was thirsty and hungry to hear more of the wisdom that came from God. Jesus turns to these folks who would know those accounts. Most of these people would know the story of Jonah. They'd know the story of the Queen of Sheba. And he turns to them and he says, something greater than Solomon is here. Now think about the people in the crowd. Solomon was one of their heroes. Even if they weren't a follower of God, everyone knew who Solomon was. He was the wisest and richest man who ever lived. We know who Solomon is. And Jesus says, something greater than Solomon is here. And these people had to go, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He's comparing himself to Solomon. Then he's saying that he's greater than Solomon. How dare he? And Jesus dared, didn't he? Jesus dared to look them right in the eye and to tell them that they were a wicked, evil generation looking for more. Jesus dared to look them right in the eye and to say, you know what, there is something greater right here among you than the wisest and richest man who ever lived. And then he takes them back to Jonah. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What is this? What is Jesus talking about? These people rising up and something greater and condemnation. What, what is he talking about? Well, it's kind of like this. Jesus is looking out at this crowd of people and he's saying to them, look, 
all of y'all one day are going to stand before God. And the reason I know that you're going to stand before God is because every single person, past, present, and future at any moment in history has the exact same appointment. And when you're standing before God, God's going to point out to you that you rejected me. That you rejected the truth about me. And he's going to point out to you all the different times that he tried to show you who I was. He's going to point out to you how many times that you left the hospital and immediately forgot the miracle that just happened. He's going to point out to you all the times you just kind of skimmed over that little article from Billy Graham when you were reading the paper to jump over to the sports. He's going to remind you and point out to you of all those times that you went to camp and you spent more time chasing after cute girls and cute boys than you did being away from your folks so that you could hear that Jesus died for your sin and calls you to follow him. He's going to point out all those Christmas and Easter musicals that you went to and and you listened to the music and then you blew it off for chocolate bunnies and eggnog just as quick as you can. He's going to remind you of all the sermons that you listened to and and then you just completely forgot to ignore by the time you got to the car in the parking lot. And then Jesus says, and in the middle of that conversation, over on the side, there's going to be some people from Nineveh and they're going to stand up and they're going to say, wait a minute, so you saw Jesus perform miracles? You were there? You, you saw him perform miracles? You, you watched him heal people and, and help people and love people, and you rejected him? Why? Why did you do that? We had some guy we didn't even know that smelled like dead fish, and he came into our city, and he just said, repent, and we did it. And we began to follow God. And on the other side of the room, a queen from Africa, the queen of Sheba, she's going to stand up. And she's going to say, wait a minute, you, you talked to Jesus? You listened to him teach? You, you, you were right in front of him while he was giving the wisdom that can only come from heaven, and you rejected him? Why, why did you do that? I had like fifth-hand information about God's wisdom through Solomon, and I, and I was thirsty, and I was hungry, and I, I chased after more. You, you had so much. Here's the thing. If you haven't already read this morning, you'll read this afternoon, either in the paper or or when you're surfing through the internet. You'll find out again that today, from coast to coast and nation to nation, we live in a wicked world. We live in an evil place. And so now more than ever, we need to heed these words from Jesus. We need to listen. We need to hear. We need to see. We need to believe. We need to follow so that one day the people of Nineveh will not stand up and condemn us. We need to see. We need to hear. We need to believe. We need to follow so that one day the Queen of Sheba will not stand up and condemn us. Jeff Thomas writes this. The Lord Christ does not need to say one more word. He does not need to do one more deed. He has failed and nothing the Father gave him to do. He did not do 75% of the job. It was done 100% by him alone. You don't need any more sermons, any more miracles, any more aspects of his character and personality to be revealed. Cease this foolish rebellion. You must make a great bonfire of your unbelief. I love that. Just think of the last time you had a bonfire. Instead of s'mores, man, throw, throw all your unbelief about God in there. 
You must make a great bonfire of your unbelief, all the sad excuses which for many years you have relied on as the reasons you have lived without Christ as you have. The bad things you've done without ever confessing them to God, you have to turn from them and never ever go back to them. And henceforth, great word, we should use that more. Henceforth and from now on, here we go, here we're at it. Henceforth, follow the Christ of the virgin birth and say this. He will be my God. I am going to worship Him. I'm going to live with Him. I'm going to live for Him. I'm going to die trusting in Him. Living or dying, my life is going to be spent with Him. There is no greater life than that. None. You won't find it at the lake. You won't find it at the beach. You won't find it at your house. You won't find it with more money. You won't find it if your favorite team wins it all. You won't find it with your favorite politician. You won't find it with your favorite entertainer. The only life that satisfies is life in Jesus. He's the sign. He's the sign. And he is the sign of grace. And he is the sign of mercy. And he's the sign of love that lasts forever. And he is the sign of satisfaction. There is no greater satisfaction. To gain Christ is to gain everything. In this wicked world, let us live as people that see that gaining Christ is the sign we need.